welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. In the busyness and the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, it would be well for us to pause for a moment to remember that once in the long ago, heaven came down with the best of agape in a little bundle of human flesh wrapped in swelling clothes, lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Today we will begin our study, and before we do so, let us bow our heads and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, thank you for the holiday season that brings to memory again the agape, the love that you have for every one of us in this sinful planet. Speak, us, speak to us now through your word, for your word is truth, and we May we all hear and take to our hearts the precious lessons we may learn today from your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, one of our student missionary teachers in the peaceful island of Yap and uh, my wife and daughter and son-in-law have gone on a mission trip on that little island, and they tell me that it is a peaceful place. And yet two weeks ago, this student missionary teacher from our church-sponsored university, the Pacific Union College in Angwin, was doing her usual morning jog. But when she failed to return to the school campus, her friends became alarmed, and later they went out looking for her, and to their horror, they found her body lying by the roadside. They discovered that she had been sexually molested, assaulted, and murdered. Last Sunday morning, an ex-con who had a long criminal record, walked into a coffee shop in Parkland, Tacoma, Washington State, not far from where my daughter lived, took out a concealed gun in his jacket and fired point blank at four police officers sitting there drinking their coffee, killing all four of them in cold blood before making good his escape. Just a couple of days ago, I read about a 16-year-old high school girl 
from Richmond High School, not too far from us here, who was sexually assaulted by six men, three of whom were juveniles, for two hours in a dark courtyard just outside the high school. And many people saw it, according to the newspaper. No one came to her help, and no one bothered to call the police. Now violence and crime in our society today, the 21st century, may be shocking to you, but let me remind you that the same crime and evil that exists in our society today, the same violence existed in the time of Jesus. In fact, Jesus used a real-time incident that happened on the Jericho Road to illustrate the timeless truth of what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Let me read for you the account recorded in the book of Luke. It's in chapter 10 of the book of Luke. And may I have your permission to read it from the revised modern cotton patch version. One day, a lawyer got up in the crowd and tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, what does one have to do to be saved? Jesus replied, what does the Bible say? How do you interpret it? The lawyer answered, love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your physical strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That is correct, answered Jesus. Make a habit of this and you will be saved. But the lawyer, trying to save face, asked, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, just who is my neighbor? Then Jesus related a recent incident. A man was going from Atlanta to Albany, and some gangsters held him up. When they had robbed him of his wallet and credit card, and stripped him of his brand new suit. They beat him up and drove off in his car, leaving him unconscious on the shoulder of the highway. Now, it just happened that a white clergyman was going down the same highway. When he saw the fellow, he stepped on the gas and took off. Shortly afterwards, a white tele-evangelist came down the road, and when he saw what had happened, he too stepped on the pedal and took off. Then a black man traveling the way came upon the fellow, and what he saw moved him to tears. He stopped and bound up his wounds as best as he could, drew some water from his water bottle, wiped away the blood, 
and then laid him on the back seat of the car. He drove on into Albany and took him to the hospital and said to the nurse, Please take care of this white man I found on the highway. Here's only $2, all that I have as a down payment. You give an account of what he owes, and if he cannot pay it, I'll settle it with you when I get my paycheck. Turning to the lawyer, Jesus asked, Now, if you had been the man held up by the gangsters, which of these three, the white clergyman, the white tele-evangelist, or the black man, would you consider to have been your neighbor? The lawyer answered, Why, of course, the Nick, the, the Nick, the, the Nick, I mean the, well, the one who treated me kindly. No, I'm still a little bit old-fashioned, and so I like to use the King James Version as the basis of our study this morning. And so, turning to Luke chapter 10, I'm keeping your hand on this uh, chapter, starting out with the story. And Jesus answered, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now Luke, being a physician, correctly pointed out that the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, he used the word down. And it was correct because Jerusalem is about 2,500 miles above sea level, and Jericho is about 700 miles below sea level. So if one has to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, it has to be what? Down. So Luke was correct. A certain man. Now, who was this man? Who was this man? He was a traveler. He was a wayfarer. But what was his name? How old was he? What was his family or racial background? What was his occupation? We don't know. The Bible didn't say, didn't tell us. What we know was that he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, his hometown. If I had to venture to guess, I think, and I may be wrong, I think he was a Jew. He was returning home after attending one of the religious festivals. And they had quite a few of those, those feast days, the feast of the tabernacle, the feast of the sheaves, the sheaf feast of the harvest, and so on, including the ceremonial Sabbath. He must have attended one of the festivals there in Jerusalem and was on his way home. The wayfarer. And so being a Jew, assuming, and that's my assumption, that he was a Jew, he must be a descendant of who? Abraham, the founder and the father of the Jewish nation. And you recall, God called Abraham out of what? The Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldeans, or the 
were the descendants of the ancient Babylonian, Babylonians. Ur of the Chaldees was not too far away from the godless city of Babel, the ancient Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel. And just as God called Abraham to be foster of a nation that would reveal his agape, his character, his glory, his love to the heathen nations, God is calling spiritual Israel today as he did ancient Israel out of Babylon. Remember Revelation? Remember the second angel's message? Babylon, Babylon is fallen. The great city that had made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. And in Revelation chapter 18, what does it say? The same thing, right? If I had time, I will run to this text quickly and read it for you here. Revelation 18, it says, Babylon, the greatest fallen, is fallen, has become the habitation of devil. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. The wayfarer, a Jew, represents ancient Israel that was to represent God to the heathen nations and through obedience to his statutes and commandments, God was to bestow upon them a special blessing so that they would be able to manifest to the heathen who the true God is, the God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. So likewise, God is calling a remnant from out of Babylon. And that remnant is what? The one characterized by the possession of the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That's right. Now, let's go on to the story. And I read further from verse 30. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among what? Thieves. The wicked. The wayfarer, the wicked, the thieves. Now, who are the thieves? Who are the wicked? They are the robbers, the marauders, the murderers, the one that rob and kill for selfish greed and gain. The wicked are the child molesters that prey on innocent boys and girls. The wicked are the rapists who stalk unwary girls and women and sexually molest them. The wicked are the white-collar executives and CEOs 
if you want. And those in Wall Street, the dream of some Ponty scheme so that it could rob widows and elderly people from their retirement funds and their 401k. The wicked, they are the radicals, they are the extremists. They are the ones that focus their hatred on people with the, uh, with the false conception that they are the cause of their problems. The wicked are the suicide bombers that blow themselves up in crowded marketplaces, hotels, train stations, and so forth. The wicked, symbolically here, represents the wolves that Jesus talked about. W for wicked, W for wolf. Matthew 7.15. Let me take the time to read it for you here. It says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? Ravening wolves, it says here. And the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, gave this ammunition to the members of the church at Ephesus. And this is what he said, for I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So, the wicked, in a spiritual sense, they are the wolves that Jesus warned us about. They are the religious bioterrorists that spread the deadly anthrax spores into the church atmosphere, inflicting the deadly disease upon innocent members the church. They are the ones that bring in the wind of every false doctrine to shake up the members. They are the ones that throw the darts, the poison darts of deception, dissension, discord among the flock. They are the ones that are led by Satan, agents of Satan, to discourage the flock and drive them away. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 and verses 4 and 5, in his masterly discourse about signs of the end time, Jesus uh, said, 
What did he say there? Let's see. 24, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Many shall come in my name, and saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and so forth. So Jesus was warning about those, those false Christs. So the wicked are indeed those that come in with a hurricane of heresy and the dust storms of skepticism to blind the eyes of the beloved, to shake them from their foundation. How can we then overcome or survive the whirlwind and the heresy and the, and the hurricane of heresy and the, and the dust storms of doubt. Jesus said, know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Free from the virus of deception. Then we must cherish the truth in our heart. If we do that, Jesus said, Thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist, that I might not sin against thee. And that we must build our faith on the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other is sinking. Yes, all other ground is sinking sand. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded what? Firm and deep in the Savior's agape. That's the only way that we can overcome the evil one if we keep ourselves in the knowledge of the truth. Remember, the church will survive despite the whirlwind of false doctrine and a hurricane of heresy, and the dark storms of skepticism and doubt. Many years ago, uh, a group of Methodists in a little town called uh, Swan Quarter, it was, in North Carolina, committed themselves to build a church. And so they went around looking in that little town for a piece of land, they found an ideal piece of land in the middle of Main Street, but they could not afford the price, and the owner refused to sell it to them for the price that, were, that they were willing, that they could afford to pay. So they had to, they had to content themselves with a marshy piece of land in the a less than ideal place in town. After many, many weeks of hard work, the Methodist members finally erected the church. And on September 16, 1876, they dedicated their little white church. Only to realize that three days later, a fierce storm hit that little town. Swan Quarter was 
almost decimated. The storms raged, the thunders rolled, the floods came up, the rains came down, and the floods came up. And three days later, when the storm ceased and the, and the thunder stopped, the people came out of their hiding places from their homes. And to their amazement, they saw that little white church floating down Main Street. And by a miracle, by a turn of miracle, as the little white church flooded down Main Street toward the junction, it stopped right on the very spot of that ideal piece of land that they had wanted to buy but could not afford. Somehow the water ceased or became so shallow that that little white church stopped right there. And the owner of the piece of land, realizing that it must be the hand of God, finally donated the land to the Methodist group. And today that church still stands in North Carolina after it had been renovated many times, of course. It is called the Methodist Church of the Providence Church of God. Indeed, what a fitting word. So despite the storm, despite the floods, that church survived. And it will survive, the church of God. Today, despite all the problems and the trials and the discouragement that Satan has brought in, yes, despite the hurricane of heresy, the dust storms of doubt, Jesus said, all the gates of hell, what? shall not prevail against it. So let us go on to the next part of the story. The next part of the account says that the wayfarer fell among thieves, which stripped him of what? His raiment and wounded him. So the next one is the wounded the hurting and the helpless. Who are the wounded? Who are the wounded? Symbolically, the wounded are the ones who have fallen casualties to Satan. They are the members of the church that have su suffered trauma, injury, from the darts of the devil. The darts of the devil are the darts of deception, the darts of discouragement, the darts of disillusionment. And the wounded are the ones that are hurting as a result of perhaps some idle word that was spoken, some baseless groundless criticism or gossip or as a result of some unkind, thoughtless, tactless remark. 
The wounded are the ones, like the wayfarer, helpless, waiting for you and I to give them a hand, to lend them an ear, to offer them a shoulder to cry on, waiting for you and I to speak an encouraging word, the warm touch, a holy hug. They are the ones that are waiting for you to lead them gently to the divine healer who said that he can heal all our iniquities and he can heal all our diseases. The one who once stood up on Sabbath and said, remember the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has what? Anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Right? The, discover, uh, the recovery of sight to the blind. And what? To heal the brokenhearted. That's right. The wounded. The one that are helpless. The one that are hurting. That's what it is. We are not to fear the darts of the evil one. We can have the assurance that Jesus can heal all our diseases. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. During the Second World War, London was in flames. Night after night, the German planes, wave after wave of German planes dropped their bombs. The city was a huge rubble. And there was a little boy who was peering through a little crack in the, in the shelter. And through that little crack, the boy saw the explosions of the bomb night after night. And he stood there shivering with fear and terror. The father saw him one night and he said, placing his hand gently to the boy's shoulders, he turned him around and said, son, look at me. Hold my hand tight. Lean on my breast. Rest. Do not be afraid. And Jesus also tells us today the same. Look at me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the terror, the evil, the crime, the violence, they will fade as we look into his glory and his face. Now, let's go on quickly, since our time is short, to the next one, and that is the woeful. The story reads, and let me go back to Luke chapter 10, and, de- and I wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So who are the woeful and who are the high and mighty and the haughty and the hypocrite? The priest and the Levite. 
The priest did not so much as come down and see that wounded man. He stood afar. He just passed by. The Levite at least have a little heart because he came down to the place where the wounded man was, but he too did not want to have anything to do with the man. You see, priests and Levites are supposed not to come near to a dead person because should a fly landed on that dead person and the fly would happen to touch them, they will become ceremonially unclean. So therefore, they can always excuse themselves, and they did, I'm sure, rationalize that, oh, who was that man? He was not moving at all. He could be dead. There's no way I'm going to come by and be accidentally touch him. I would become unclean. Or they could have rationalized and said, oh, I'm in a hurry. I have more important duties to do. I can, I can have, I can waste my time on this fellow. And besides, he might be dead already. But whatever it be, the woeful are the ones that think of themselves better than others because of their position, their class, their status in society. They feel themselves superior and holier-than-thou attitude is what they always try to display. They are always trying to show off how holy and moly they are so that others are inferior to them. Reminds me of, the, of that white lady in South Africa who was taking a flight from Johannesburg, South Africa, you know, in South Africa, the apartheid, remember those days? The age-old conflict between the white and the black? Well, this lady happened to be the head deaconess of the church. She is the uh, manager of a well-known local bank. And she was traveling on British Airways from Johannesburg and found herself seated next to a black man. As the plane was about to take off from the runway, you could hear the commotion going on. She was fussing and fuming and demanding that she be seated somewhere else. And the waitress came and said, Ma'am, what's the problem? What's bothering you? Oh, don't you see what's bothering me? You have the audacity to sit me beside this old dingy, dirty, black person, you expect me to smell the stench for the long flight of six hours? You better find me another seat. The stewardess apologized. I'm sorry, ma'am, but the flight is full today, but I'll try to see what I can do. And a few minutes later, the stewardess came back and said, ma'am, as I thought, the economy section is full. We have no seat. The business class is also full, and we have no seat. But there is only one seat vacant in the first class. And before the lady could say anything, she said, well, 
As I told you, it is very unusual for us on British Airways to upgrade a passenger from the economy class to the first class. So I had to ask the permission of the captain. And the captain said, under these circumstances, the captain felt that it would be outrageous to have someone be forced to sit beside an obnoxious person throughout this duration of the long flight. And so, the stewardess turned to the black man and said, Sir, would you pick up your belongings and follow me, and I have a seat ready for you in the first-class cabin. And sure enough, the passengers broke out into a loud applause, just like you did. You know, the Son of Man, Jesus, the King of Heaven, being in the form of God, thought it not to be robbery with God, but made himself of what? No reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. Jesus never allowed class, position, rank, or status in society to build a wall or a barrier between him and the common people, the untouchables, the prostitutes, the publicans, the sinners. His agape embraces everyone regardless of race, color, caste, or creed. Likewise, we should as Seventh-day Adventists, break all barriers. You see, the woeful are not only those who consider themselves holier than thou. They are also, as I listed here, the wishy-washy. In the sense that they cannot make a decision when it comes to choosing between what is right and what is wrong. They are afraid to put their reputation on the line when it comes to helping the poor and the destitute. Last summer, I had the privilege of visiting Russia. I spent a day in Moscow, in the Red Square, in the Kremlin, and I saw many of the statutes and busts of the premiers and leaders of Russia. One of them was Nikita Khrushchev. You remember Nikita was, given, was giving a, uh, an important address to the, superior, to the Soviet Superior Council one time. And in the midst of his address, he was talking about... Uh, about the atrocities and the evils of the Stalin, the Stalin era. And in the midst of his address, somebody sent up a note to him, and the note read, Mr. Khrushchev, what were you doing during the atrocities of Stalin? Khrushchev got very mad and angry. 
and he yelled at the crowd, at the audience, Will the person who wrote this know, please stand? No one moved. He got more angry. I will give one minute to the person who wrote this note to please stand and acknowledge himself. Still, the audience was quiet. Finally, Premier Khrushchev said, well, you want to know what I was doing? I was doing exactly the same thing as the man who wrote this note. Exactly nothing. I was afraid to stand up and be counted. Likewise, beloved, the wishy-washy, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are always uncertain when it comes to doing the right thing, unwilling to make a decision for the right. You know, Jesus reserve the strongest and the most scathing rebuke on the religious leaders of his day. And if I, if I can read it for you here, it is uh, found, I believe, in Matthew. But I will not take time to read it because you remember all the woes that he hurled upon the scribes and Pharisees whited sepulchers, heaping burdens upon people that they themselves are unwilling to bear, and so forth and so on. A platter that it looks clean on the outside, but inside is full of dead man's bones. Woe unto thee, scribes and Pharisees. On and on and on. You see what I mean? So likewise, we need to keep ourselves humble and lastly, we'll finish up the story that Jesus told. And, he, and the story goes on in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the host, and said, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. You have now the worthy the humble and the holy, the meek and the lowly. These are the ones that Jesus gave his approval of. These are the ones who cared as Jesus cared. These are the ones that know that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. These are the ones that know that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. These are the ones that 
served as Jesus served, that ministered as Jesus ministered, that loved as Jesus loved, with the agape love. Yes. These are the ones that demonstrate the beauty of agape. The best, I said, the best of agape seems to be an oxymoron. How can agape be the best? It is already the ultimate. How can there be something better than the ultimate, the best? What I'm trying to say is the best of agape cannot be expressed in song, sermon, or rhetoric. The best of agape cannot be demonstrated with eloquence before a worldly throng. Best of agape can only be expressed and demonstrated in action and deed. The best of agape is demonstrated by what Jesus said, when I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came in unto me. They are the ones that make no distinction between class, rank, or position. Rodney Robertson worked in the homeless shelter in Los Angeles to try to pay his way through college. He was used to all the cursing and the swearing and the squabbling and all the fighting in the homeless shelter. One late night, as the people in the homeless shelter were getting ready for bed, there came, uh, stumbling into the homeless shelter, a big, burly, Hispanic man and No sooner that he had managed to take off his boots, he collapsed on the floor in a drunken stupor. But the stench and the odor that came from his boots and his socks and his clothes and his body was so bad that it stank up the whole place. You could smell it across the room, and the people were grumbling. They could not sleep. The smell was deadly. It was vicious. They could not stand it. They were complaining and yelling and demanding to Rodney to do something about it. Get that fellow out. Drag him off into the street where he belonged. Take him out on the sidewalk. Rodney could not do that. He had an idea. He wanted to drag the man to the, to the shower, to the tub. But since he could not break, bring Ra, uh, the, the, Jose, was his name, since he could not drag Jose, since he could not bring Jose to the tub, he decided to bring the tub to Jose. And so he got hold of two big buckets, pot scented lemon-scented wash soap 
in the bucket, stirred it up, brought it to Jose, knelt down beside him, pulled off his socks. Oh, the smell was deadly. Pulled off his trousers, pulled down his underwear, and lo and behold, it was stuck to his skin. And when he got it down, oh, there were maggots crawling all over the place. Oh, what a horror. After two hours of scrubbing and cleaning, finally Jose looked as clean as a whistle. And the wonderful thing is, all of a sudden, mysteriously, there was a hush in that homeless shelter. All the squabbling, all the fighting, all the verbal abuse, all the demanding suddenly ceased as everyone looked with curiosity at what had happened, at the transformation that had taken place, that had taken place in Jose. Oh yes, an act of kindness, an act of love can transform a whole homeless shelter. It can transform a whole church. It can transform a whole classroom. It can transform a whole school. It can transform a whole office. It can transform your home. An act of love and kindness. His name was his name was Billy. His hair was long and wild. He wore a t-shirt with several holes. His jean was worn and tattered. Literally, that was all his wardrobe during the four years he was in college. Billy was a little bit esoteric, a little strange, but he was brilliant, he was smart, he was a straight-A student. But the wonderful thing about Billy was he became a Christian. He gave his heart to Jesus during a campus crusade. Across from the college was this modern, fancy, beautiful, but conservative, very conservative church. And one day, Billy decided to go and see what was going on in the church because the pastor and the elders of the church had been trying to find some kind of a ministry for the college kids. So Billy went into the church one Sunday morning with his long, wild hair, his T-shirt with holes, without shoes. He walked down the aisle as the service was about to start. All eyes were upon him. As the young man came down the aisle, looking left, looking right, not a vacant seat anywhere. The church was packed. There was only standing room. So finally, Billy came down the aisle, and still there was no seat. So he squatted down on the floor. The members' curiosity turned into anger and rage. Why did not anybody do something about it? Where's the deacon? It's time that somebody get him out of the building. He is interfering with our service. 
And while this was going on, they hear the click, click, click sound of a walking cane. And the people in the church look back, and lo and behold, there was this elderly gentleman in his 80s with silver gray hair, very composed, very dignified, dressed in a three-piece suit with a cane. Oh, some of the members recognized him. He was the former mayor of the city. He was the past president of a local bank. He was the head deacon of the church. Now, at last, somebody was going to do something about this kid. And so, this old man started walking down with his cane. And when he reached the front of the church, he dropped the cane sat down beside Billy, put his arm around the boy, took out his pocket Bible, and started sharing and worshiping with Billy. The audience was choked up with emotion. There was not a dry eye in the crowd. And after the pastor had contained himself or controlled himself, he stood up before the congregation, and said, Beloved, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. But what you have just seen, you will not forget. Heavenly Father, thank you for your agape, for the love that you have shown to us in such beautiful way and has taught us how to relate to our fellow men. Oh, love that will not let us go, we rest our weary head in thee. We give thee back the life we owe and in its ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.